Bibles, please, and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. We have to wrap up chapter 40. We weren't able to get through it all this morning, but we'll go right into our text and then move into chapter 41. The setting of Isaiah 40 is so critical to understand what's happening in chapters 40 through 66. We know that Hezekiah had three tests of faith that God placed before him. And the first two tests of faith, Hezekiah passed with flying colors. And isn't that true in our own lives? Often we can go through a trial and we come out just wonderfully. Then another trial comes our way, and again, we exercise faith and trust in the Lord. But then another one hits us, and we fall. And in this case, Hezekiah fell on the third trial. A group of diplomats from Babylon came, just a small, tiny country. Remember, Assyria is the big nation. It's the world empire. And Babylon is just a small country up north and off to the east. And they came to Hezekiah and uh, just bragged about his supernatural healing from this fatal disease. But they also wanted to work with Hezekiah to overcome Assyria. And Hezekiah opened the doors of his house, the treasury, the temple, showing, showing them all of the things of the Lord. And Isaiah walks in, King Hezekiah, what have you done? Where are you placing your trust? You are entertaining these diplomats from Babylon? And as a result, we see this in Isaiah 39, verse 6, God said through, through Isaiah, those things that Hezekiah showed the diplomats in Babylon would be carried off into Babylon. And sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar does do that. He comes down and he ransacks Jerusalem and he takes those temple treasuries and hauls them up to Babylon. And then God says, but I will also take your children, your sons whom you beget, and I will make them eunuchs up in Babylon. And we know some of those, Daniel, we have Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names. So these are men who went off into captivity as a result of Hezekiah's arrogance and his lack of trust in the Lord. But now that this captivity is looming, the nation Judah now knows they're going into captivity. They're going to Babylon. They just don't know when and how and all of those details, but God made it very clear they're going. Now they had two questions. The first question, does God still love us? Will he deliver us? He delivered us from Assyria. Will he deliver us from Babylon and all of our enemies? And the answer in Isaiah 40 is, yes, absolutely he will. Not only will he deliver them, he's going to come himself and do it. The Messiah will come and intervene. Of course, we know that the sin issue is the biggest issue. So the Messiah came the first time to deal with our sin and the sin of Israel, but the sin of the world. But the second time, he's coming to liberate Israel. And he's going to put an end to sin. And um, he's going to establish this kingdom of righteousness. And so that was one of the questions. The second question was, is God able to? Does he have the power to deliver us? He may want to deliver us, but does he have the power? How big is our God? And Isaiah in chapter 40 says, our God is so great. Our God is so great that all the waters of the oceans fit in the hollow of his hand. Metaphorically speaking, God is infinitely large. So even that is too small. Of a, but it, how can our minds grasp the greatness of God? Because all the waters of the ocean just fit right in the hollow of his hand. The span of the universe, from one end of the, gal- or of the universe to the other end, which how do we comprehend millions upon millions of galaxies, they fit just in the span of his hand. All of the dust of the earth in a pinch, in a measure of his fingers. How great is our God that he can lift up the islands? 
Like nothing. He can simply say, hmm, I want some Hawaiian islands. Boom, up they come. Our God is so great. And this is what Isaiah is telling the nation Israel. You can trust our God. He loves you and he has the power to save. Then if you were to take all the trees of Lebanon, every one of those gigantic cedars, build a big fire and put all the animals of the forest on top of it as a burnt offering to Jesus, to the Lord, Isaiah says that is not even sufficient for what he is worth. That's how great our God is. We go on and on and on. And so let's, keep, let's continue on from this morning, verse 21. Before we go into this, let's pray. Father, again, as we come to this text of Scripture, help us to recognize the greatness of our God, your, your greatness and majesty. Help us to be humbled and small in your sight, that we would trust you in life's circumstance, whatever the trials, the difficulties, the temptations, whatever the sorrow, the grief, the discouragement, the depression, whatever the joys, whatever the brightness, whatever the glory that we have here on earth, let all of it be shaded by the cross. Let all of it be under your protection and under your watchful care. Help us again, Father, to recognize in this text of Scripture that you not only have the desire to deliver your children, you have the ability to. You can do all things. So again, as we trust you, thank you, Father, again, for working in our life and revealing yourself in such a way. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. So we're looking now at verse... 11, in verse 21, there's more questions that are going to be asked to the nation Israel. Verse 21 of Isaiah 40, have you not known? Have you not heard? I mean, these are things you should know. Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Verse 22, it is he, it is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The Lord is so big that for him to sit above the earth, he can look upon, listen everybody, seven, over 7 billion people on our planet right now. And I will guarantee, I don't know, it's middle of the night in Tel Aviv. We were in Tel Aviv just a couple, just what, a week and a half ago? In one in the morning, it is nonstop traffic. Busy. People walking out, people having coffee, sitting at, at one in the morning. I'm in bed at one in the morning. They're out doing all night, all, all 24 hours a day. They never sleep. While we're busy on this part of the world, the other part's sleeping. While they're sleeping, we're working. You know, but the Lord Jesus sits over the circle of the earth. He's above the earth. He's, he's outside of creation, but also he's everywhere in creation at once. So he's both outside and within. He knows every thought, every movement. He knows everybody, what they're thinking, what they could think, where they're going to go, what, where they could go. All the possible ramifications of making a certain decision, even if we don't make it, the Lord knows it all. Can you imagine the wealth of wisdom in his head? And then for him to orchestrate all of these things by his providence so that certain nations rise up, certain presidents rise up, certain countries rise up, all of this rises and falls, and in that very end, his will is accomplished no matter what. He is amazing. There's nothing he, can, he can't do. He can direct the course and the direction of our country. He can give us the president that we deserve or need. He can give us the Congress. The, he can do all of that. And in, he, he is in charge. He is sovereign over the affairs of the world. It goes on in verse 22, and it says, He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Now he's, now he's going to begin moving from the inhabitants of the earth to the inhabitants or the heavenly bodies in the, in the universe. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain 
That happened on day two, and he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Remember how in day two, he took the expanse of the firmament in this watery globe, and he stretched it out, so there are waters above and waters below, and it wasn't until day four that he populated the expansive universe, which was empty, like a a curtain that he drew out, he then began to populate it with the sun, moon, and the stars. And in the book of Genesis, it says he made the sun. He simply spoke and said, let there be a sun to rule the day. And instantly, our sun, a tiny little star in our neighborhood of the galaxy, began to shine, which fits a million Earths. Can you imagine just speaking forth the sun, this blazing ball of fire that's 25 million degrees Fahrenheit? That fits a million earths, and he can simply say, hmm, let there be a sun, and it is there. It didn't have to evolve, it just shows up. Then, oh, let there be a moon to rule the night, and there's instantly a moon. And then he says, let there be stars also. And no sooner does he say it, but the word comes from his mouth, and it's there. All of the stars of the galaxy. This is an amazing God we serve. Verse 23. He brings the princes to nothing. If he can do things like this, he can certainly bring these rulers, the leaders of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab down in Somalia going into Kenya, the Nigerian uh, Boko Haram. Who's in charge of these? The Lord. The Lord is... He, he can squash these at any moment. To him, all of these rulers are nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Verse 24, scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Remember how Hitler came on the scene? I mean, I just heard about it from history, but just hearing about the rise of Hitler and his power and the dominance there, and then all of a sudden, he's gone and it's over. That is our God. Scarcely are these leaders planted and they think they're big shots in the world and God just takes them right down. We can trust him no matter what. Verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, God says? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. Look up at the heavens and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. These are the stars of the sky. He calls them all by name by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Listen to this last phrase. Not one is missing. The Lord Jesus looks out at the heavens. He knows every planet, every star. He has a name for everyone. He knows how many molecules of dust on everyone. And not one is ever missing. He never loses track of one little star out there in the billions upon billions of stars. Can he look upon the earth and could he ever lose track of us? No way. I think that the Lord Jesus in Romans 8, interceding for us before the Father on the throne, I bet continually he's like, Father, strengthen Brian. Encourage him. Teach him my word. You know, direct him by the Holy Spirit. The, the Son is continually interceding on my behalf. There is not a moment when he has not been thinking about me. He doesn't forget. Now, I forget. I turn my back and I forget who I just was talking to. Seriously, that, we're like that. We have so many conversations and so many people in our life that, you know, like whoever I talked to yesterday, I talked to a lot of people, but, and I could remember some of them, and if I sat down, I could make a list of everybody, but still I forget. Not so for the Lord. He, he, there, not one of us is ever missing under his watchful care and gaze. 
Wow. Again, who could we ever liken to our God? Not one. So verse 27, here's kind of a complaint that Israel has against God. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim, it's passed over by my God. They were saying, Lord, why would you let us stay in captivity for so long? Why would you not intervene and take care of us right away? Why won't you stop the problem that we have and just fix everything? Why are you waiting, Lord? Why can't you just... Is it because you don't care? Is it because you forgot us? Is it because you haven't been paying attention lately? Why have you forgotten me in my trial? I think some of us have said the same thing, haven't we? Trials that endure year after year after year, and we wonder, Lord, have you not listened to me? Have you not heard my prayer? Have you not listened to me plead and cry and weep? Where are you? Why aren't you working? Well, here's the answer. Have you not known... Verse 28, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor is weary. And it says here, his understanding is unsearchable. Listen, it's not because he's tired that he hasn't helped you. It's not because he's grown weary or faint. And it's not because he doesn't know he, do, he lost some understanding. That's not any of the reasons why he's delayed and he's allowing us to suffer. Well, what is it? Verse 29, he will give power to the weak. Notice, who does he give power to? He gives power to those who are weak. He does not give power to those who think they're powerful. Paul learned the lesson. He learned only the lesson that when he was weak, then Christ was made strong. Then the power of God was evident in his life. When he was crushed beyond measure, when he was when he was being stoned for, for dead, or when he was before Galileo, and he was being told, um, accused by the, by the Jewish people. One step, every single time that he was being broken and humbled, he began to realize, the more that I'm broken, the more the power of God is made known in my life. Isn't it true? When everything is going fine, I don't need the Lord. When there's enough money in the bank, when there's no problems, and everything's going well, I don't need the Lord. I mean, because I can be independent, I think. I think. And in my power, there's no strength of God in my life. But it's when I am broken and when I'm suffering and I'm hurting, that's when truly Jesus Christ is shown evident. I'll tell you what, Rich Whitman, I saw that this week. You know, talking to him before a surgery and then after a surgery, a man of confidence. He was like, I'm not worried. He's like, I'm not worried at all. Whatever the Lord does. I thought, wow, that is exactly what it should be like. We can trust the Lord. He will give power to the weak. And to those who have no might, those are the ones he increases strength. Remember how he worked with Gideon in the army? Gideon had a large army, and what did God say? Gideon, you're not going to fight the Midianites. By the way, the camels of the Midianites were uncountable. There were so many. There were so many enemy you couldn't even count them all. And God said, Gideon, you have too big of an army. You need to whittle it down. And from 32,000 to 22,000 to 300, and then all of a sudden God said, okay, now you can fight with 300. Because it's when you're weak, then I'm going to be seen as strong. And if you win with an army of 32,000, you get the glory. And I don't want you to have the glory. So that's why God does this. This is why he's going to let Israel suffer year after year, 2,000 years of dispersion. This is why. And then he moves on. 
verse 30, some of the most beautiful verses in the chapter, the conclusion. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. Even the strong and the energetic young, young men will, in their own strength will be faint and weary. And the young men, they will utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord, those who trust him, those who have their faith and their confidence in the Lord with an earnest expectation that he will do it, they shall, and your Bibles may say, they shall renew their strength. I think a better Hebrew word, they shall exchange their strength. You exchange, you give the Lord your weakness, he gives you his strength. So you will be given an exchange of strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, no longer being crushed, but now rising above the problem and the difficulty. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the promise of God. God said, do you know why I'm waiting? Do you know why I'm going to be patient while you're suffering in captivity? You need to learn to trust me. And until you trust me, there's no strength and there's no deliverance. See, what a great chapter. This is what the rest of the text is all about in chapters 41 through 66. Hey, let me tell you very quickly how I'm going to break this up for teaching. Isaiah 40 through 48, it's about glorifying God and not idols. We're going to deal with idolatry for all of these chapters, 40 through 48. Then in 49 through 55, those chapters, it's, I call them the servant songs. So you're going to hear me talk in the next couple of weeks a lot about idolatry. Then in 49 through 55, we're going to talk about the songs of the Messiah. Who is the servant? What does he look like? What does he do? And we're going to hear all about salvation. The cross. We're going to be talking about the cross for those songs. And then um, from 56 to 66, it's going to be glorify God in the new kingdom, the millennial kingdom, as he comes down and he, he, um, he, he uh, transforms the city of Jerusalem. So really, these last three sections are just huge. They're tremendous. Let's move right on to chapter 41. I think this will be quite easy for us to grasp. I'm going to give you the introduction, and then I'm going to give you three pictures Three pictures of God intervening in Israel's life. Because remember what the problem was. Will God intervene? Will he save us? And does he have the power to save us? God's going to make it clear. He can save them. And then he's going to give us three pictures about it. Let's go to chapter 41. Keep silence before me, O coastlands. These are all the Gentile nations around Israel. Be silent before God. Let the people renew their strength. Again, from last chapter, who's going to renew their strength? Those who... Wait on the Lord. So it's a cry to all the nations. I'm going to give you time right now. I'm going to give you time. Renew your strength by trusting the Lord. Well, what's happening in the scene? Let them uh, come near. Let these Gentile nations come near. Let them speak. Let them come near together for judgment. Verse 2. God's now going to make a claim. Who raised up one from the east? who in righteousness called him to his feet, who, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings, who gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning. Then God answers, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. All right, what's this all about? All right. Stay with me, because I don't want this to be too confusing. I want to make it as simple as possible. There is a king that's going to come from the east, all right? 
There's a king that's going to come from the east. This king is not going to have a problem with victory. He's going to conquer every nation along his path, and he will be unscathed as he does it. He's going to be called in righteousness to serve as the servant of God. Now, it could be Cyrus. Isaiah mentions Cyrus's name. Cyrus is a king, and he's a king out in the east. He's a Persian king, and he's going to conquer Babylon. So are you with me? There is a real king named Cyrus. And Cyrus is the king of Persia. He's going to conquer Babylon. But when Isaiah is alive, Babylon is not the empire, and Cyrus is 150 years from being born. Now, he gets mentioned later on in the book of Isaiah. We're going to come across Cyrus by name. So Isaiah says, God knows that our God, the God of Israel, knows everything. As a matter of fact, he can name a king who will not be born for 150 years. And sure enough, 150 years later, a mom and dad have a little baby boy, and they're holding the little baby boy, and they're like, hmm, what should we name this boy? And not out of the blue, but really by God, by the providence of God, they're like, should we name him Billy? No. Should we name him Sammy? No. Let's not name Should we name him Johnny? No, Johnny doesn't sound right. How about Cyrus? Yes, let's name him Cyrus. Listen, to them it might have just been a choice, but 150 years before Cyrus was born, God said, I'm going to raise up a king whose name is Cyrus, and he will free, he will free you from Babylon and let you build the, king, the city of Jerusalem. All right? So many people think that this king from the east is Cyrus. But he's not named. And actually, Cyrus doesn't do these things that is all mentioned. So the question is, who is the king? I don't know. My belief, I think it's Jesus. Whoever it is, even if it was Cyrus, it's just a picture of a conquering king. And I think every king, like Cyrus, just was a type of Jesus coming to liberate his people and to free them from the enemy. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if we think about it, like, and I'll tell you why I think it's the Messiah, the rest of the chapter talks about Jesus' second coming. That's why I think it's Jesus. But let's look at it again. Verse 2. Who raised up one from the east? Well, only God. God raised up Jesus. And Jesus, uh, again, uh, we see actually a couple of things about him coming from the east. Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Only God. We know that's the correct answer. Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Only God can do that. Who gave them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Only God can do this. So the answer to each of these questions, only God can do it, only God can do it, only God can do it. And then it even says, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So we know God is the one orchestrating all the events of the world. And he is in charge. Let's keep going. Verse 5. What's the response of the nations as this conquering king comes? The coastlands see it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and they came. Okay, now listen. If a conquering king is coming from the east and you're not saved, you will turn to one another for help and you will turn to false gods, right? So this text shows us what unbelievers do when they're fearful. And when the Messiah comes, or another conquering king, but let's say Jesus, when Jesus comes at his second coming, he will bring such terror upon people, because he is the conquering king. Here's what they're going to do. Verse 6. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspires him who strikes the anvil, saying, 
it is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. What are they building? They're, they're building idols. They're, under, they're going to die because of this conquering king and they have never trusted Jesus and they're busy building idols, encouraging one another. Quick, get some more lumber, get some more silver and gold. Let's get this statue up so we can call upon it for help. God says, these statues will not help you. They are no God. You're, you're missing the true God. They even have to nail it down to the floor so it doesn't fall over. And yet they will bow down and seek help from this false statue, this false God. Now look at, in contrast, three pictures. And we're going to close on these three pictures. You ready? Israel becomes a victorious servant. Israel becomes a transformed worm. Yes, a worm. And then thirdly, Israel goes from needy to being sustained and healthy. All right, so we're going to look at those three pictures. The first picture is Israel as a servant that becomes victorious over all their enemies. And this is the promise that God is going to change this whole world scene. God is going to intervene. Verse 8, But you, Israel, are my servant. Now we're going to begin in this chapter with this whole issue of a servant, and you're going to see it through the rest of these chapters. Sometimes Israel is the servant, sometimes Cyrus is the servant, but most often Jesus is the servant. In this case, it's Israel. But you, Israel, the nation, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. See all the terms of intimacy. Um, The descendants of Abraham, my friend. Is God going to forsake his people? No way. He made a promise to Abraham. And then it says, you, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions, that's the gathering of the dispersed people, he said to them, to the Jewish people, you are my servant, I have chosen you, and I have not cast you away. Has, has the church replaced Israel? No, it has not. Israel is being regathered. God has a purpose for Israel. They, are not, they have not been cast away. Here's the promise, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. The, the very presence of God will, we will be with the Jewish people. Be not dismayed. This in the Hebrew it means don't look around for help. Don't look... To this nation, don't look around for help. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. That's his relationship to his people. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So we see his presence, his relationship, his power, his compassion. He has not forgotten Israel. Verse 11. Behold, all those who were incensed against you, and I think about all the Arab nations Um, And so far, uh, do you notice that Israel stayed out of the ISIS situation? They haven't even said a word about it. Although an Israeli was murdered by some some ISIS um, uh, people, yet Israel has not said a word about it. So it's interesting to see what will happen in the future, as right now ISIS is getting closer and closer to the Israeli border um, in Syria there. But um, here it says, all of those who are incensed against the Jewish people, they shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. Anybody who curses Israel, what did God say? Anybody who curses Israel shall be cursed. Anybody who goes against Israel, God will deal with. He will, he, he, they will perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, anybody who fought against Israel, those who war against Israel, shall be as nothing, even as a non-existent thing. Why? For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand. I will say to you, fear not, I will help you. Who's on, who's on Israel's side? 
God is so clearly. So we have Israel, the servant of God, absolutely victorious. Who wins in the whole world scene? The U.S. doesn't. I love our nation, but we don't win. South America, no country down there wins. China doesn't win. No other Arab nation wins. It is Israel who wins. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. You will have a physical people, and you will have spiritual blessings to all the world. God made a promise, it's going to happen, and nothing will stop it. I will guarantee, if we are not on Israel's side, we are on the wrong side. Okay, so that's the victorious servant. Here's the next picture. Worms. Do you know anything about earthworms? I just did a little bit of research. Here's what I know about earthworms. The only fact I really know. The weight of all the earthworms in the world, the weight of all the earthworms in the world is 10 times the weight of the human population. If you were to take all the earthworms out of the earth and weigh them on a scale, they weigh 10 times more than all of the people in the world. That's how many worms there are on the earth. But do you know what worms are? Well, I know you know what worms are. You know what they do? They're, they're, they're called threshers of the soil. They, they are threshers of the soil. It's kind of interesting. Worms are easily crushed and squashed, just like Israel appears to be a, a, Israel appears to be a worm. Easily squashed, easily hurt, right? Easily picked on. And there, Israel's like a tiny thresher of the soil. Look at what happens when God works, when God intervenes in Israel. And we're looking at verse 14. Fear not, you worm, is Jacob, you men of Israel. Again, it's, not a, it, it's, a, it's a word of helplessness and easily, easily hurt, easily crushed. Uh, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Okay, real quick, side note. Right here, God says, I will help you, and he calls himself their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Remember when Gabriel, the angel, came to Mary? And Mary is like, hmm, what's happening here? And you're going to have a son, and this baby that is going to be conceived in your womb is going to be um, the son of the Most High God. And then, and then the angel says, and he shall be the Holy One of Israel. I bet anything, Mary knew. She knew her Bible just based on her song that she sang after the angel met her. I bet when the angel said, the babe in your womb conceived of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit overshadows you, will be the Holy One of Israel, she knew. Isaiah called God himself, the Holy God, the creator of the world, the Holy One of Israel. She knew that the the God of Isaiah 40 and of Isaiah 41 was now inside her womb. Wow. Can you imagine? She knew that. This is phenomenal because it's the same phrase. Verse 15. When God intervenes in Israel, behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge. Not just a tiny little threshing worm, but a threshing sledge with sharp teeth. A, a, a threshing sledge was used to cut open the grain. On the, after, you, after you harvested the, the grain, you would put it up on the threshing floor. And you would have an animal, a beast, a burden of some kind with a, sl- a wooden sled tied behind it, kind of like we would hold a, sl- a toboggan. But on the bottom of the wooden sled would be sharp stones and pieces of, of maybe metal or rock, uh, rock or glass or some sharp things. And then that threshing sledge w- w- sled would go around the threshing floor and break open the kernels of grain. And so Israel 
Someday, not right now, but someday, they're going to be a dominating power in the world. And they're going to just run over the nations like a sled over the kernels of grain. And just like the kernels of grain would split open, they're just going to run around every nation and conquer. The Lord is just going to be with Israel, and they're going to win. And so this is what they're going to do. They're going to be a threshing sled. They shall thresh the mountains and beat them small. All of the nations that oppose them, they shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Again, we get the Holy One of Israel. So again, who wins? Israel. If you were Israel and you heard Isaiah preaching this, what would you think? You would think, we can trust our God. Our God has promised to deliver us, and he has the ability to deliver us, and he's going to change our nation to be a mighty warring, uh, warring nation. We're going to win every battle. And yet, what was Israel's response when they heard Isaiah preach? Uh, you know what the tradition for Isaiah is? In the days of Hezekiah's son, tradition has it that people hated him so much, they sawed him in half. They sawed him in half. They put him in a tree trunk, I think is what I read. And then they just sawed the tree and him right there. This is how they, instead of saying, our God is a great God and we're going to be the greatest nation because we have the greatest Messiah who paid for our sin, they said, anybody who preaches like Isaiah, we got to get out of here. Isn't this terrible? This is the response of Israel back in the day. Someday they will believe. And then finally, look at the last little picture, verses 17 through 20. This is a picture of the needy Israelites being sustained by the power of God. So not only does he make them a great nation, victorious over all their enemy, he's going to provide every one of their physical needs. He says it this way, verse 17. The poor and the needy, they seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Look at he just says it over and over. I will not forsake you. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine. Listen, those don't grow. They need lots of water to grow. They, there's no water down there. This, this whole topography, the whole geography of Israel is going to change. The box tree also is going to be growing down there. That, and why is God going to cause the land to grow so greatly? That they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Everybody is going to bow their, name to Je- their knee to Jesus because they're going to see this transformed wilderness. Listen, Again, we were just driving through the wilderness. We drove all the way down to Elat in the Negev Desert, came up by the Dead Sea. Um, we saw the driest, most barren land. And there would be a tamarisk tree here and there. And just everything is just dry. Right, Melissa? Every valley, dry. There's just like nothing green. Little, uh, little bushes and shrubs that somehow find a little bit of moisture someplace. But you can go for a long time and not see anything, and then all of a sudden there'll be a little wadi or a valley, and there'll be like five tamarisk trees where you could tell water at one time ran for a brief moment. But down in there, there's some underground rivers, and the roots must go down and tap into that source of water. But again, they're not vibrant green trees. They're, they're, they're just very spiny, 
prickly, very, very dry-looking trees. God says, when you get in, you will be dry and thirsty entering that land, but he's going to make water flow from the tops of the mountains, and it's going to flow down, and it's going to make the entire desert like a garden. And then everybody's going to stand back and say, wow, God is truly God. Why didn't we trust him earlier than this? See, these are the great days coming for Israel. And right now, they're in a time where they are set on a shelf because of unbelief. But God is going to work in them. He's going to intervene and change them entirely. Now listen, what about the church age? We are living in the church age. We have, we have biblical truth. We have responsibility to proclaim the gospel to all the world. We have a responsibility to edify the church. Why do we need to edify the church? Because if this church is not strong, missionaries cannot be sent out to proclaim the gospel all over this planet. We've, we've got to be a strong and a healthy church so that we can reach our neighbors, we can have a good testimony in our, in our community, and then from here, this is just a stepping stone to reach more people with the gospel, more and more and more, time after time after time. Now, that's what, we're, that's what our responsibility is. But if we're not doing that, then we are just as bad as Israel. Do you, do you agree? God has given us responsibility to build up one another, to edify one another. And, um, and then... Being built up, we go out and we preach the gospel. Again, if we are not doing that, then we have failed just like Israel has. And so we have our own responsibility in the church age. But it is nice to know God desires to save his people. He has the power to save his people. But we also know he, he does it in the end. He will do it. Someday, we're going to be in the millennial kingdom. And I think we're going to gather around maybe for a special worship service or just even a Bible study. And we're going to say, do you remember going through Isaiah at Faith Baptist in Hermantown? Back when planet Earth was its sin- sinful, corrupt place. We'll say, remember? Now look at We were talking about the cypress and the box tree living in the wilderness. And look, this is the d- dry, barren wilderness that is now like a garden. Truly, God is God. And we're going to rejoice. We're going to sing and we're going to celebrate. We're going to have picnics under those trees and watch the water gushing from the tops of the mountains. Maybe we'll even open up our Bibles and say, wow, this is exactly what God said will happen. And here we are. It's the day that it's here. That day is coming. We're one day closer to it all the time. Well, I hope you're encouraged by God's word. And again, we're going to just keep going through Isaiah and try to, to really have this text affect us. And again, you're going to hear so much about Israel being a great nation being led by the King, Messiah, Jesus. But it gives us great hope for the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this text tonight, just thinking about the greatness, your greatness as creator, as Lord over all the nations, over all the princes, and over all the rulers. We also know that there's no idol that could foretell the future. There's no idol that can direct the path of nations. It is you alone who can do these things. We also know that you're going to transform your servant Israel to be a victorious servant. All of their enemies will be squashed before them. They will be laid low and Israel will be, will be made great as their, their king, Jesus Christ, comes back. We also know that they are like a, a helpless worm, easily crushed, a small thresher of soil that someday will thresh the mighty nations around them. And they will win. They have the ultimate victory because of our Messiah, Jesus. And then we also know that the needy and the brokenhearted and those who are suffering in Israel that wait upon you, they trust you, they will be sustained. Just like the dry wilderness will just be full of water and uh, vegetation. 
So you will sustain the thirsty, the needy, and the outcast. Thank you again, Father, that these promises come to those who believe. Thank you that we have believed. And now I pray that for the church, for our church, we we would fulfill our responsibility to build up this church, to make it stronger day by day, and to go out and preach the gospel. We want more lives transformed for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, thank you again for being here tonight. Say, I just want to, uh, again, 